0: Brothers and sisters in the struggle for human dignity and freedom. I am here to represent the struggle that has gone on for 300 or more years. A struggle to be recognized as citizens in a country in which we were born.
1: This is Ella's Voice, the official podcast of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. Named after the civil rights hero Ella Baker, we organize with Black, Brown, and Low Income people to build power and prosperity in our communities. Welcome to another episode of Ella's Voice. If you follow the Ella Baker Center or our executive director, Zach Norris on social media, you probably know that the paperback edition of Zach's book, Defund Fear, dropped earlier this year. In Defund Fear, Zach draws on his many years of organizing experience at the Ella Baker Center to lay out a blueprint for how we can reimagine public safety beyond prisons, police, and punishment. This episode, we'll be sharing some of the great dialogue with Zach and amazing movement leaders who are all working to defund fear in their communities. First up, we'll be hearing a panel discussion with Zach Rinku Sin from The Narrative Initiative, Devon Bogan from Advanced Peace, and Jeanette Bocanegra from Justice for Families. Then we'll hear Zach talk to Danielle Sered from Common Justice. We hope these discussions will inspire you and if you haven't already, you can find a copy of Defund Fear wherever books are sold.
2: Welcome, everybody. It's really great to uh, be with you, and thank you so much for joining us. I'm Rinku Sen. I'm Executive Director of Narrative Initiative and longtime troublemaker. Before we begin, allow me to introduce the panelists. Obviously, we have first with us Zach Norris, who is the author of Defund Fear and the executive director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights and also co-founder of Restore Oakland. Uh, With Zach, we have Devon Bogan who is founder and CEO of Advance Peace. Prior to founding Advance Peace, Devon served as neighborhood safety director and director of the city of Richmond, California Office of Neighborhood Safety. Devon is a national authority on urban gun violence prevention and intervention. And with the two of them, we have Jeanette Bocanegra, who is the executive director of justice for families, a dedicated mother of six, a grandmother of two, and a longtime resident of the South Bronx. In 2015, Jeanette was awarded the child welfare organizing projects, Courageous Activist Award. And later that year, she received the Lo Mejor de Nuestra Comunidad Award from Comité en Noviembre. Now, let me introduce the book. Defund Fear is published by Beacon Press, originally as We Keep Us Safe. Defund Fear lays out mm-hmm. a blueprint for reimagining our vision of public safety and reforming our justice systems in ways that prioritize constructive care and support fear um, and uh, that prioritize constructive care and support over fear and punishment. Zach's book dismantles the false he keeps us safe narrative rooted in white supremacy and patriarchy and lays out a we keep us safe model that centers impacted communities and real solutions for change. The book balances real life testimonials and case studies in in a way that prioritizes humanity and agency for everyone who has been dehumanized and traumatized by what Zach calls the framework of fear. Tonight, we'll be using that framework, the one that Zach sets up in his book, to talk about how we can all defund fear and build real safety and democracy for our communities. So I actually want to start our discussion with you, Zach, and um, just have you talk a little bit about what led you to change the title of the book um, for its paperback edition. What, what, what were you thinking? Tell us. Right.
3: Thank you, Rinku, um, and just thank you all for being here. Greatly appreciate you all taking the time. In renaming the book, I was somewhat anticipating this moment right here, where we would be breathing somewhat of a sigh of relief to have um, moved past uh, a, a president who was bent on keeping power permanently, it seemed. And yet we are under the leadership of someone who brought us the 94 crime bill um, in President Joe Biden. And with that, I was really thinking about something that, that, um, has been a challenge for me. And that you know, is, I'm an activist, I'm an organizer, but I'm often someone who actually shies away from controversy. But some of y'all were at the initial book launch, so you will remember that I said that in order to get to safety, we will have to take risks because the status quo is so defined by fear and domination that in order to get to safety, we will have to take risks. And so I wanted this book to really land solidly within this controversial topic of defunding the police and prisons. Because my uh, call to you all is that we can and we must defund policing, punishment and prisons. And I wanna break that down into two parts. The first part is why we can do it. And the second part is why we must do it. On the first front, Come on, y'all. We spend $0.53 of every federal dollar on the military. In California, we built 23 new prisons and just one new university from 1980 to now. The lion's share of resources in municipalities and cities across the country go to policing, first and foremost. And um, we know that the one thing that actually, excuse me, the two things that have been recession proof each time there's been a recession over the past 40 years have been policing and prisons. And so while education was getting cut and healthcare, and housing and all of the things that really keep us safe, policing and prisons continued to grow and grow and grow. And so we can do this because the money is there. We spend, you know, $1.2 trillion on incarceration alone per year. Those resources should be shifted towards actually um, ensuring that people have a roof over their head, have food on their table, can support their loved ones. So that's why we can do it. Why we must do it, I think, should be obvious post-COVID-19. I never thought you would need to say that we need a public health solution to what is the quintessential public health problem, a global pandemic. But when you haven't paid for public health infrastructure, you can expect to fail when this global pandemic arrives. And that's what we've seen in this country, that we can't think about taking care of public safety if we haven't taken care of the public. And COVID-19 really laid that bare for everybody to see. So that's reason one why we we must do it. And I think the second reason, really just goes to the heart of democracy itself. This is um, something that uh, I think is a problem for the Democratic Party um, because they have been, uh, it's been a bipartisan effort, right? To continue to uh, funnel resources into punishment, policing and, and prisons. And so now this same Democratic Party has to really respond to what they are going to do. And I know we're going to talk about that. But the larger issue is that um, the power and influence of policing and the punishment industries have grown. Each and every year, Those that social safety net was being cut and punishment and prisons continue to get more and more resources. It meant their political power continued to grow as well. and so. When all you do is really fund police, you shouldn't be surprised then if you wind up with a police state. And that's what Donald Trump really inherited and tried to make his permanent um, power grab. But thankfully we were able to move past that moment. And um, we have begun the work necessary to turn things around. Um, And what I really wanted to name with the title shift is that it is going to require ongoing and continued work to advance a books not bars, jobs not jails, healthcare and housing not handcuffs agenda. And I know you know a little bit something about this Rinku being in Texas where just recently in Austin, they took resources from actually defunding the police department and supporting housing for unsheltered communities. That's the kind of shift that we need to be seeing in cities and states across the country. And it's one of the things that gives me hope that despite all of the infrastructure, um, we've all of the work we've done in digging ourselves into this hole, that we have a real opportunity to get out of it. So I hope that helps to answer that question.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. I, I want to just um, note how beautifully the book takes these uh, big trends in our criminal legal system, the scapegoating of communities that are vulnerable because of poverty or discrimination, the racial bias that's built into that system. And one thing that's so uh, wonderful about the book, Zach, is that you um, present stories of not not just case studies of whole communities, but the direct experiences of people who are navigating the system and living with and around and in it. And I'd love to have each of you talk a little bit about how, um, how your own work advances defunding the police, um, how, it, uh, how those uh, different dynamics that Zach's book talks about show up how they've shaped your work and your life. And Jeanette, I'm actually gonna start with you,
0: if that's okay. Zach, it, though it's in your book, it's the reality in the communities that that we we talk about. you know. And I say, we just don't talk about it. I'm in one of those communities that it's a revolving door. And for many years, I thought that that was the norm, that it's okay for us to experience these these injustice um, systems in our, in our communities. Until I met Zach and, and the report that I worked on, that really highlighted um, much of what we need to work on and not just work on, but educate the community. I was one of those who didn't think too much about the justice system. I have six kids, none of them have been through the system until that young one, the one with the problem, the one who highlighted um, where my efforts needed to focus on. Because I knew that when when you talk about dollars and how much dollars are being invested in education here in New York versus the justice system, I knew that there was a problem. Now getting involved with the justice system in New York, almost $300,000 to house and incarcerate a young kid and returning him back home to the community, to their parent, very traumatized, hurt, uneducated in a way where, where where did those dollars go into? If you would have invested those dollars in the community, we would have made a difference. Becoming aware of the justice system, I also realized with working with families because I became a beast. Rinku, you say uh, you're angry or I don't know what, something which they won't look at you as a positive person. Well, I became a beast. I became a hungry, thirsty beast. The child welfare system, another system that too much money goes into separating families from kids the justice system, removing kids from the community. I think I'm a pretty decent parent, but those systems made me feel like I was the worst parent ever. Then housing issues, job issues, all the issues that we want communities to really thrive away from and thrive in, in a good way. We're investing those monies in prison, so they gotta get shut down. We gotta shut them out, down. Right? We gotta educate so we can shut them down. Investing more money in education, we got failing schools here. The amount of money that this New York was is investing in educating our kids, less than 20,000, 30,000, but 300,000 to incarcerate and to separate from families. So Zach, thank you for always bringing an awareness to the issues that need to be addressed. I took a risk this year too that I say, I'm not gonna fear the COVID because COVID just put that rubber stamp on, on all the issues. An additional one, the health system, we know that the disparities in the health systems, we also gotta educate the community about these, these disparities. So taking a risk is giving hope because what, why am I gonna lose now? What can I lose? What can I lose? Thank you so I'm already much. At, at, in the communities that are mostly impacted. I'm not going to move away from here. I want to make a difference, mm-hmm. but the money has to come to these communities. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much.
2: I think um, it's really, when you talk about abstract things like a framework of fear um, and a, a fear-based rationale and, and system, it, it can be so easy to forget that there are actual human beings there. But Devon, you have a long history of um, also grappling with the effects of having this kind of fear based philosophy run our systems, especially with young people. Can you talk a little bit about how you see uh, how you see that fear, that philosophy of fear showing up in your communities and in your work?
4: Absolutely. First, let me say hello to everyone uh, joining us tonight. Thanks, Zach, for uh, inviting me to participate this evening, and, and certainly thank you for uh, the wonderful work in your book. Um, thanks for doing that. Um, you know, as Neighborhood Safety Director, um, I, I think it's where I, I really cut my teeth in moving beyond sort of my own intuitive sense of what works and, and what doesn't work particularly as it relates to um, what works in our communities to uh, develop people, what works in our communities to heal people, what works in our communities to keep people safe. Um, But it wasn't until I became Neighborhood Safety Director where I, I learned that the current approach to keeping people safe, even from violent crime, doesn't work. Uh, and and that's important for me uh, to say here. It just doesn't work. Our current approach to public safety lacks imagination. It assumes that violence uh, and crime are inevitable, and that the only way to address this is to actually respond to it. And and as a result, you know, we're losing lives, and we're spending enormous amounts of money uh, that hasn't, doesn't, and will not deliver optimal health and or safety outcomes uh, for these impacted communities. Uh, So continuing to do sort of this business as usual, uh, quite frankly, is costing us real uh, real public safety. Uh, What I've learned uh, is that relationships matter and involving the very community where uh, challenges uh, are being navigated or negotiated to actually be a part of being a solution towards those challenges is critically important and can be critically effective. Even as it relates to addressing uh, violence and violent crime uh, in our communities, I learned, Uh, being inside the public system, for example, uh, that police spend very little time, policing spends very little time addressing violence. And when they are, it's in a response mode. However, the budgets that policing have, these enormous budgets are justified by violent crime. Uh, and, and, And so that's really crazy. When you think about that and you continue to see where this is happening in several cities around the country uh, that high rates of violence persist. Uh, so we're, we're not getting anything for our investment and years and years and years uh, have passed and have demonstrated point blank. What we're currently doing doesn't work.
2: Thank you so much. I wanna ask each of you if there are specific aspects of your work, campaigns or programs or proposals that you're working on that are that advance the idea of defunding fear. So Devon actually gave us a little bit of a bridge to that question, but I'm wondering, Zach, if you wanna come in on that and then Jeanette, I'd love to hear um, any specific uh, things you're working on that you wanna turn our audience on to.
3: Yeah, um, both Devon and Jeanette are doing amazing work to advance opportunity for young people and adults. So I'm really excited to hear their responses. I will say that we have fought, you know, for over a decade to close youth prisons across the state of California. And when people hear that, they think, oh, well, that that's not a pro-public safety strategy, that's just closing youth prisons. But actually, as we did that, youth crime continued to decline during that same period as we were closing youth prisons. And it's because young people were being abused and maligned um, and basically were being prepared for the adult prison system inside of these youth prisons. So by actually shifting away from the state-run youth prison model, we were both advancing human rights Um, But also advancing public safety and that's the thing I think people don't always pick up on but by organizing. um, Young people and their families, we were able to shift the dynamic from where legislators thought we should be discarding these youth to now understanding, we should be discarding these youth prisons. The youth prisons are actually the problem. The young people are not the problem. We see their families. We see the links that they are going to to actually support their children and grandchildren. And that's the beautiful work that Jeanette has been leading, Devone have been leading. Um, I, I liken it to you know they say that there's a study done that radiologists, when they see a, a broken bone and they see the picture of the person who, of that x-ray, they're, they're much better able to diagnose the problem. Because when we're attuned to people's humanity, we act with greater skill and compassion, right? And so what we were doing when we were organizing and bringing young people with their families we were recontextualizing these folks who had been derided as the youth pre- youth super predators, right? We were showing that they were part of families and communities, and we were reintroducing, so to speak, that picture of their humanity, so that legislators weren't just operating off of knee jerk reactions and stereotypes, but were really seeing that just like in their community for their children and grandchildren, that each person, young person, and adults are more than the worst thing that they've ever done as brian stevenson said so i hope that gives some sense of like the way in which our our organizing work is also about advancing public safety
2: it does thank you so much um jeanette uh will you go next
0: yes two of the things that 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 justice for family does and i'm really great i'm proud of that i'm part of this amazing organization, is we train system folks on how to part, truly partner with families so that there's better outcomes for young people and families. And we have a Family Leadership Institute. Education is key. If families don't understand what's going on with these systems and how these policies and local politicians that they vote for, um, what platforms they stand on. um, So it's important to educate the families about trauma, brain develop, the adolescent brain development, because parents also forget when they were teenagers and what are the things that young people experience so that they can help. You know, when I, and, and also when I, and healing, we have communities that are hurting, not just hurting for themselves, but generational trauma, their families experience. So when people are hurting, hurt people hurt, you know how they say hurt people hurt people? We need to heal communities. And when my son returned back, he was not the same kid that, that they, they took away. And this goes back to how young people and, and our loved ones are returning from incarceration back to the community. If I didn't understand what I learned through other families and, and, and the work, I would have called the cops on my son because I didn't understand the trauma that he experienced. And when there were outbursts, I learned that he was broken and something happened to him. So I was not the one who was gonna call the cops. I had to care for him. I had to understand what he he was experiencing. I had to understand what were the triggers because when young people come back and our loved ones come back home, now I know why. Many of them return because also the community is not prepared to embrace someone that returned home. And until we don't educate the reason why they returning so broken. And until we don't educate on the tools that families and come, I might get emotional. It's not an easy job. I still wonder what they did to my son. He's okay now, but it also took time for me to heal and and learn about meditation and yoga and breathing because I wanna, I, I still wanna know, I know something horrible happened. And I also blame myself as a parent because I had no control over what happened behind those doors and those walls. But he was not the same kid they took away from me. So I know that he's not the only one. I'm also happy and glad to be doing this work, but it took that one, my last child who gave me the most challenges to understand that it was not just him. And I couldn't just, he said, why you look around at everybody? I said, I like to be, I like to be aware of my surroundings. I saw the big picture. And the big picture is that this is a big puzzle that it takes all of us to do something about it. Our communities are hurting. So when when we're hurting, we don't know ex- how to express emotions, we become destructive. So I don't fear what they did to a lot of our loved ones behind those those walls. Because I'm embracing them with love and care and respect, and created a space in my community that they feel they can feel welcome and wanted. I want all the problem child, I want everybody with the issues because we're gonna sit down and there's a solution. So, Zach, I'm so grateful to you because when I thought there was no hope, 11 years later, I was part of raising the age of criminal responsibility. Thank you. Gladys Carrión, an amazing commissioner, shut down 22 of those horrible prisons. We got these kids getting out of Rikers already. Rikers is getting shut down. Spafra got demolished. So thank you, Zach, because you gave me hope, you gave me knowledge, and you gave me tools that's what I needed, and that's what I need to share. And I feel like the octopus sometimes. Anyway, I'm going to shut myself <laughs> yeah, up. And now you're giving those hope and
2: knowledge and tools to us, and that's how it, that's how it goes. Um, so much gratitude to you, Jeanette, and so much respect for your family and your community and your work. So, Devon, we'd love to hear um, a bit about some of the specific things you've been working on and trying to move. Thank you.
4: Uh, Real quickly, um, Jeanette, thank you for sharing, sister. Uh, It's powerful and powerful work that you're doing. Uh, Don't underestimate uh, the power of what you're doing. Never do that. Um, You know, in the last section, I I said, you know, what currently is happening our current approaches don't work. And I'm often challenged uh, with the question of what do you mean by, you know, it doesn't work or it isn't working. And, And simply put, what we're currently doing has no opportunity to deliver optimal uh, safety and health outcomes uh, to our community. So I just wanted to be very clear uh, about that. Optimal public safety and health outcomes uh, to our people is what we should be about. And we together uh, within those communities uh, can do a much better job than what's currently uh, happening. I want to say that, you know, we believe that community health and safety is most likely uh, to be improved when the focus of change starts uh, with a willingness to directly engage those who are most at risk of committing or prevent uh, or being a victim of the harms that uh, we're trying uh, to prevent. And in that regard, um, you know, I believe that uh, what advanced peace is about is about helping communities create a life-affirming life, inf- life affirming community infrastructure uh, that can help heal people, that can help uh, young people who are at the center of firearm activity make healthier decisions and thereby become productive uh, contributors to their neighborhoods and become the leaders that they were born uh, to be. Uh, when we began the work um, at the Office of Neighborhood Safety. In 2007. uh, This was the first infrastructure inside of city government of its kind. A non law enforcement agency inside city government with an explicit focus and single charge of reducing firearm assaults and associated injury and death. A big part of our work is about helping to create, uh, helping cities create. Uh, the public infrastructure uh, to do that uh, without utilizing uh, law enforcement uh, as the primary tool or weapon uh, to do it. I'm excited to say that, uh, you know, in 2007, when the office was created, uh, it was was the office, the single office in the country doing this work in that way. Now there are more than 20 offices inside city government Uh, doing this kind of work. Uh, So that gives me a great deal of hope because uh, everywhere there's an office of neighborhood safety or an office of violence prevention, we're seeing productive, positive and optimal outcomes uh, delivered. So uh, the question of whether or not this can work has been answered. Uh, We have to pay attention and we can't be afraid uh, to infuse love into our public policy. Uh, I'm thankful to have had the opportunity uh, to spend eight, nine years in the city of Richmond, California and thankful for the leadership uh, on the city council and certainly um, the city manager's leadership in making uh, something like this happen. And now we see it happening around the country in greater uh, detail and numbers.
2: Thank you so much. Just incredibly inspiring and comforting Uh, to know that the three of you are out here doing this work. Okay, super quick. The one thing in one sentence that you want the Biden administration to do that will help defund fear and build frameworks of hope and love and um, compassion. Uh, Let's start with Devon this time and then we'll go to Jeanette and we'll wrap up with Zach. Very quickly,
3: I'd like to
4: see the uh, White House, create a White House initiative office on ending urban gun violence sort of modeled after its current uh white house initiative on educational excellence for african americans something that's truly focused on making sure that the uh, appropriate and adequate resources uh, are assigned uh, for doing this from a non-law enforcement vantage point period
2: awesome fantastic thank you how about you
0: jeanette get these kids out of these adult prisons. Kids don't belong in adult prisons and invest in communities. I I don't want to, I don't like using reinvest because they've never invested in my community. Just bring those dollars into the communities that are mostly impacted, but definitely get these kids out of these adult prisons. Thank you. And how about you, Zach?
3: I appreciate you Devon and Jeanette. Um, Daniel Sered who's with Common Justice in New York talks about We shouldn't just say sorry, we have to do sorry. I believe this President Joe Biden needs to do sorry by undoing the 94 crime bill, by supporting the passage of the Breathe Act, by funding programs like the one that Devone um, runs in cities across the country, the Live Free campaign that Pastor Mike McBride runs, by funding community safety centers like Restore Oakland that show a new vision of community safety is possible, and is being brought into being. So thank you all for joining. And I just want to end by saying that y'all can help bring this into being. Um, That you can buy this book, you can share it with your friends, uh, you can share it with your city council members, you can share it with your neighbors. All of these are ways that we can ensure that we reject this lie that, you know, one strong man authoritarian will keep us safe and instead, uh, live up to the value um, and the promise of we keeping each other safe, that we keep us safe. So thank you, Rinku, um, Devon, and Jeanette, and I'll pass it back to you Rinku.
2: Thank you all for joining us um, for the I, I could have talked to all of you, the three of you all night and in 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 later after pandemic times, we should try to do that. That would be totally fun.
1: Next up, Zach speaks with Danielle Sared, restorative justice leader and author of Until We Reckon, a book that offers real solutions on how we can create pathways for people who have committed violence to repair harm and meet the needs of survivors without relying on prisons.
3: Uh, Danielle, thanks so much for joining me today. I greatly appreciate it. Um, I feel like your ears must be buzzing because I am so often talking about the amazing work that you do in New York. And when people say, you know, we can't heal from harm, we can't undo cycles of of violence and poverty and incarceration, I always think of the work that you are Mm -hmm. leading. Um, I think of the book that you wrote, uh, Until We Reckon, which is amazing and important and Thank you read. Um, and um, yeah, so I'm just grateful um, to talk with you today. Uh, and I wanna ask you a few questions. Um, and uh, the first one is just, how are you doing? Like how, what's going on with you? It is 2021, it is not 2020. Um, how are you feeling this afternoon?
5: I'm feeling really determined this afternoon. I mean, I think people have not felt the kind of uplift in 2021 that we maybe hope to. And I think it's a reminder that like, the underlying conditions that generated 2020 did not evaporate at midnight on any day. Um, And at the same time, I think that anytime there's a juncture where we can like close a phase and open a new one, um, where we can say we are at the end of the phase where this was brand new to us, with from the disorientation of it, the feeling of a complete crisis and of unknown, and instead steer into a spirit that is not just about contending with the disruption and the lack, but also like starting to cultivate some creativity, you know, being like, oh, what are, what do we wanna build? in this totally upended situation we're in, not just like, how are we going to get through it? And I feel like a little, like a thread of bandwidth for that in ways I haven't through most of the pandemic. And so trying to steer into that as much as I can.
3: Right on. I appreciate that. Um, Yeah, I have been saying, you know, 2020 is not an aberration. It is a culmination of Uh many years and decades Uh centuries um, of us not investing in the safety of our communities in this country. And so I want to start by asking that question, which is just if you could talk about like, what's your definition of vision for safety? What does that look like um, for you, for your community?
5: I mean, I think that you know, safety includes the things that normally come to mind for us, like uh, freedom from violence, freedom from certain kinds of harm, right? Like not being physically hurt um, in certain ways, also not being emotionally hurt in certain ways. But I think safety is bigger than that. I think safety is not just about absence. I think it's about presence, right? Safety is the ability to meet our basic needs, the ability to ensure that the people we love have their basic needs met, the ability to keep our children safe, the ability to see the people we love thrive and like pursue opportunities, like for their dreams to bear any relevance on what they're going to do with their life, like for people's dreams to matter is part of safety. Knowing you can get health care when you're sick is about safety, like knowing that. Like your healthcare bills will be covered and that you won't face debilitating debt because you are unwell is safety. Um, Knowing that you can learn about the world you're in, the world that you came from, all of that and be located in a place is is what safety is about. And I think fundamentally, like safety is built in relationship. Um, We do an exercise that many of us in the movement do where we ask people to imagine a time they felt safe. We've done this in groups of five people, groups of 500 people. And every time we get the same answers, people say in my grandmother's house, in my mother's house, at home with my children, at my neighbor's house where I used to go when my parents couldn't care for me. Nobody ever, with the hundreds of people we've done this exercise with, including at law enforcement conferences, have said in the presence of police or prisons, not once. And still, when we ask the question, how are we going to build safety? people start talking about police and prisons. And part of what we know is that if all of our experience of safety is an experience of relationship, is an experience of connection, then those are the things that will constitute safety. And those are the things that we invest in to create more of it.
3: That's right. That's right. So beautifully said. Um, And how would you say that to uh, the Biden Harris administration is my next question, or maybe you want to reframe that. How do we say that? How do we collectively demand it? What are what What do you What do you think needs to be communicated, and what needs to be done to really bring that into being with this new juncture, as you described it?
5: I mean, I think in some ways the easiest roadmap for a Biden administration is to look at what. Biden was part of in the 94 crime bill and do the opposite.
3: Come on now.
1: Yeah.
5: And so if we want to think oh what are the variety of levers that the federal government has available to it from sentencing guidelines to practices that relate to the Bureau of Prisons to practices that relate with to how funding is distributed which local practices are incentivized and how they don't actually have to start from scratch to identify nationally every last lever they can pull in order to affect communities because the vast majority of those levers were pulled in the 94 crime bill Mm. and they were pulled in the interest of punishment in the interest of isolation like in the interest of surveillance and control and so it provides an extraordinarily efficient blueprint for what it would look like to actually generate safety to actually generate liberation And to contend with the damage that has been caused. You know, at Common Justice, we talk about not just saying sorry or feeling sorry, but doing sorry. You know, we talk about accountability as a set of actions. And I think that this is not about shaming people. This is not about asking people to beg for forgiveness. This is about saying, like, to President Biden, so few of us get the opportunity to repair the wrong that we have done. And part of what he has earned in becoming president is a position from which he stands a chance of beginning to repair the damage that was caused by that 94 crime bill of which he had such a central role. And mm-hmm. so like this at Common Justice, we think of an accountability as an act of love. And so in that sense, we are ready to love our president okay. um, and that believe that You know, he's not the only one, our nation, engaged in an experiment about whether punishment would produce safety. And that experiment has failed at enormous cost to millions and millions of people. And it's now our job to call it, to call the failure of that experiment, to repair as best we can, including the things that can never be undone, and to forge a different way forward. I think the other thing that I would say to a Biden-Harris administration, is that their biggest levers to produce safety are not going to just be the Department of Justice. Their levers to produce safety are going to include education. They're going to include how they continue to develop the healthcare infrastructure. They are going to include a public health infrastructure. Um, they're going to include all of these other dimensions of the federal government that actually reach in to the structural conditions that are the fundamental drivers of violence. And the truth is like they will do more through the development of a public health infrastructure to advance safety in communities than they will ever do with a criminal justice infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so for them to understand that the tools available to them to generate safety are not primarily justice system tools.
3: You hear that President Joe Biden? Don't just say sorry, do sorry. And also, <laughs> Look back at that 94 crime bill, do all of those things, except for the opposite. That's my short summation. I appreciate you, Danielle. That was awesome and amazing. And also the the third thing that you said that I want to underscore is that the tools at your disposal are not primarily law enforcement, not even primarily sort of criminal court system related tools, but those tools of supporting every single family in this country to make sure that they have the basic things that we all need to be safe and to thrive. So I just wanna thank you. say thank you so much, Danielle. If there's anything else that you wanna lift up or um, anything else that remained unsaid, we'd love to hear if if you wouldn't mind, just give folks a little bit of sense of the work that you're doing to heal
0: communities.
5: Sure, at Common Justice, we develop and advance solutions to violence that meet the needs of those harmed advance racial equity and don't rely on incarceration. And at the center of our work from our outset has been um, an alternative to incarceration in the adult court system for serious and violent felonies based in restorative justice practices, where people who have committed crimes like stabbings, shootings, gunpoint robberies come together with the consent and participation of the people they hurt to reach agreements about how they can repair that harm, how they can make things as right as possible. And if they fulfill those agreements, they don't go to prison. In the meantime, we support the people harmed in coming through what happened to them and in their lives generally. And, you know, we are such deep, um, fans isn't quite the right word. We are such deep um, partners to the Ella Baker Center. We are in so much gratitude to the Ella Baker Center. Zach, we are in so much gratitude to you for your work and your vision. We are so excited about your book. Um, and about the like continuous work that I know this book is just sort of one piece of it that is emerging into a public conversation of really longstanding work to ask and answer the question about who gets to define safety, like what that definition is, what it takes to actually generate it. And I think part of what is so valuable about the work you do is the way in which like you relocate the locus of control to define safety to the people who are currently least safe. And you ask people, what does safety look like for you? And of course, people know those answers. And so our job is to ask people who are unsafe, what will make them safe? And then to work in service of that vision as much as we can. And I know that in this book and throughout your work, you've just done so much to help us see clearly to that. And I'm so grateful for it.
3: Oh, thank you, Danielle. I really appreciate that. As you were saying that, I felt myself kind of shifting and sitting up, and I got my Ella Baker Center t shirt on. So, I'm very proud to be a part of this team and to be a part of this broader team and this social movement that we're in together. And so, everything you just said is a reflection that I would like to give back to you as well as someone who has been. Um, shifting people's understanding of what's possible in such powerful ways. Um, so just want to say thank you so much.
5: Beautiful. Thank you. Wishing uh, you a very non-2020 year. <laughs> yeah, there you, go. Thank you
1: Thanks for listening. Defund Fear is now available wherever you buy books. And if you want to support your local bookstore, go to zachnorris.com and click the Buy Zach's book link to find it on IndieBound.org. Ella's Voice is a production of the Ella Baker Center in Oakland, California. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a review. To become a member of the Ella Baker Center and organize with us to win jobs, not jails, books, not bars, and health care, not handcuffs, go to ellabakercenter.org.